Hello again. Before we start this episode of the Bighorn Podcast, here's hoping that you and your family and friends are doing well. Even though we are staying apart, we are all in this together. We all should continue to follow the necessary protocols, and we are all going a little stir-crazy, but let's hope that we will be back to a less restrictive lifestyle in the very near future. We still need to be diligent about distancing and hand-washing, but moving forward, we will be able to see each other soon and socialize. I wish you good health and keep positive. Also, please contact us on email at bighornpodcast at aol.com with your suggestions and comments about our Bighorn Podcasts. And now, the next episode of the Bighorn Podcast. Welcome to a new edition of the Bighorn Podcast with interesting people and their fascinating stories. I'm Marty Lockman, and today's episode is brought to you with the generous support of Leeds & Son Fine Jewelers, a member of our community for over 70 years, and AT&T, who reminds us, it can wait, please don't drive distracted. We look forward to another great story of the twists and turns that brought us to this place in our community and in our life. Today's guest is Roger Gadu, a member of our community since 2010. And before we have Roger tell us about his illustrious career, let's begin where his story starts, in Springfield, Massachusetts. Thanks, Marty. I am truly honored and very delighted to be here today to share my story with the Bighorn family. Um, as you said, I was born in Springfield, Massachusetts. My parents actually met in the War Department at the very beginning of World War II. We were a very small family. My sister was actually born during the middle of the war. My father didn't meet his daughter until she was two years old. I was born seven years later, long after the war had ended. And the, we stayed in Springfield until I was a little boy. We moved to, uh, the next town was Shemokin Dam, Pennsylvania. Most people have never heard of Shemokin Dam, and I, I say it's about 10 miles outside of Sunbury. They don't know where that is either. So it's 60 miles north of Harrisburg, almost the dead center of the state. We were there, and one of the life experiences occurred there. There was a hurricane that came inland in 1954 called Hurricane Hazel. Check it out. It's one of the more inland hurricanes. It took our house down, and the good news is we were renters. But from, from there, we moved to Toledo, Ohio, and that's where I really grew up. Um, we had nothing, like a lot of you know, people at that time, a lot of families, but we didn't feel like we were deprived of anything. Uh, both of my parents worked, and since my sister was seven years old, or about the time I was six or seven, I was basically on my own. It was not a hard luck story, but it did have, it contributed greatly to, I think, what made me who I am, especially in the formative years. Uh, my parents let me alone at age seven when my sister was in high school, and as long as, you know, I didn't get into trouble, everything was okay, but I was independent. I was on my own. I didn't have any sitters or watch. And I had my bike and I got to go everywhere. For some reason, early on, I wanted to work. And so I got a lot of lawn mowing jobs, you know, between the ages of eight and 12. And then at 13, 
Uh, and oh, by the way, my first mowing job was with a real mower with, you know, just a reel, no motor. Then the second motor, second lawnmower was actually had a mower motor, and the third one was a ride-on lawnmower. I thought I'd arrived. But that lasted till about age 12 or through 12. And then when I was 13, I, I got a job at a grocery store and I was a bottle boy. And that's when bottles were two cents a bottle and we sorted them for all the vendors. So the Pepsi was went in one flat and the Coke in another and Verner's and Fanta and so on and so on. And it wasn't a very glamorous job, but it got me going. A year later, I got promoted to a stock boy and it was summer. I worked a midnight stocking shift from midnight to late in the morning. And this is where things get kind of interesting because as the summer ended, I just kept working. And two weeks into the school year, my parents saw me one night and they said, where are you? Where have you been? And I said, well, I, I'm working. And, uh, but school started. And it was literally that independent. And we made a deal. If I could keep working as long as my grades didn't slip. So I continued to work uh, midnight shift, stock boy, all through high school. And again, it's not a hard luck story. It's what I wanted to do. It did, I, I did have to give up sports. That didn't work. And I wasn't too good on the girls' circuit either. But I made a lot of money, relatively speaking. So my wife kids me that you know I still have all of my paycheck stubs from the 60s. And I remember the first one because I was just looking at it recently. I, I started at 86 cents an hour and I worked a 40 hour week and that comes out to about 35 bucks. And after they got done with taxes and union dues, I had to join a union, retail clerks union. And when the net on it was $18. And I said, hmm, this isn't as good as I thought it was going to be. And so, you know, the idea is just keep getting bigger jobs and make some more money. And, you know, I did fine. I did absolutely great. So I graduated high school, and I thought I was going to go off to college, and I did. And for a long time, I never admitted that I didn't graduate college, but I only went to college one semester. I went to Adrian College in Adrian, Michigan. It was 1968. It was a pretty volatile time in the U.S. Uh, King had just been assassinated in April of that year, you know. So I started college right after that, and there was the uh, you know the Vietnam War demonstrations and just an awful Bobby Kennedy had been assassinated. Just an awful lot of volatility. But to be honest with you, you're growing up and you don't really realize at the time how volatile it is. It's just it's life, and it's just what you're being dealt. So I decided after one semester of college that I'd rather join the military than wait to be drafted. I got it into my head that I had better chances that way of you know maneuvering, if you will. And it worked out. Uh, I, I went to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. I happened to be an expert marksman. I had never fired a weapon before. But during basic training, they grabbed me and they put me on an Army weapons demonstration team. And that was my MOS for quite a while. So it was relatively easy duty. Then I got into booby trap training in South Carolina. Long story short, I got my two years, you know, I got my service done. I got out. And then I got into the workforce. And I was supposed to go back to college. That was the agreement I made with my folks. But I decided I, I better get into the work. Force before 
everybody starts returning from Vietnam. And 68, it was pretty, you know, pretty much at the peak, 67, 68, 69. And I was out in 70. And I started to interview and I reflected on my grocery store experience. And I remember the companies, the, the salesmen that really seemed to have it good were the NCR cash register guys and the Procter & Gamble guys. So I just called on NCR Cold, and you know, I was in Toledo, and they're headquartered in, in Dayton, Ohio, and I had to interview in Toledo, and then I had a guy tell me, he said, well, you know, we, we only hire college graduates, and, and I really pressed hard, and I was relentless, and I said, well, is, there, is that written? Is it a policy or what? You know, and long story short, he, he kicked it up. That went to Detroit. Same experience. I went up there, same questions, same issue with no college. Then I went down to Dayton, Ohio, and I wound up getting hired. So careful what you wish for. I'm about, you know, six months into the job, and NCR is the father of salesmanship, George Patterson, and they're actually the ones that invented the, uh, the concept of the annual sales convention, and they did it in Hawaii, and, you know, if you met your criteria and your goals, you got to go to the National Sales Convention. And I came into an office every morning and I looked at this wall, it was like a, just one big office, and on the, the far wall were all the names down the left-hand side and all the months a year across the top. And if you got your quote in for the year, they put a palm tree at the far end. So it was about August and my ribbon was about halfway through January. And I'm thinking, this may not be for me. And the reason is you're, you know, I got the job, but I was a junior salesman and I worked for a senior. And I only got to canvas my territory when he didn't have stuff for me to do. And when, he, when that happened, I had, my territory was east of Maumee River, Toledo, Ohio, down to Sandusky. And if you've ever been in that part of the country, there's really nothing there. There's gas stations, dry cleaners, restaurants, and try selling a cash register to a guy that owns a, a gas station. He's got to crawl out from under the car and he's looking at you like you're the last thing he wants to see. So it was very, very difficult. So then something momentous in our life happened. My father had just taken a new job with a company called National Sponge Cushion. And he was in the carpet business his entire life. And this was kind of like he arrived. So he would sell commercial to GM, Ford, Chrysler, the things in your trunk, the felt liners, the, the, the material over the engine compartment. And he went down to Atlanta and he was in training. It was his first night there. And he got held up and robbed on Peachtree Street and he got shot twice with 238 caliber bullets. So he made it up to his room. And I know this is pretty dramatic. And he called the house doctor. He passed out. They came. They wind up calling us. They don't know if he's, they don't know what happened. I left my house. I told my mom, stay here. I'll go. And I went. And the reason why I share this story is I wound up taking a leave of absence from NCR for two months to go down there and take care of him. And I got him out of the uh, public hospital, which was called Grady Memorial. And I got him into a private doctor's hospital, brand new, uh, eight doctors put it together. And, you know, my dad thinks I saved his life. And I don't feel that way, um, but he felt that way the whole time. And 
And it really did make an impact on him. Again, it was there was racial undertones to it and et cetera, et cetera. Long story short, again, I decided to take that time and think about where I wanted to work and not go back to NCR. And by the way, I did have a great sale at NCR. I, I sold the first Wonder Bar there. That's a drink dispensing system and where you know they measure it for you and everything. Um, so I, I, again, I reflected back on my grocery store experience and I thought, okay, Procter & Gamble. The exact same experience happened with Procter & Gamble. You need to be a college graduate. I was not a college graduate. I was relentless. I pressed. I'll bore you. I won't bore you. I got the job is the bottom line. Uh, and then something interesting happened. The head of HR for the Foodtown Supermarkets, the company, the grocery chain I worked for, he took a job in HR with Macy's, and I got a call. And it was, we're, we're looking for executive trainees. And my job that I got with Procter & Gamble's was in the Tide Box Soap Division. It was going to be in the Tri-Cities area of Michigan. That's Inland Bay City, Ross, that part of Michigan up there. And I was going to be alone. I was single. And I just didn't have my heart in moving. And I went and took the interview with the smallest division of Macy's. And they offered me an assistant buyer's job had no idea. It was in greeting cards. I thought I was going to be reading greeting cards the rest of my life, trying to figure out if this is a good one or that's a bad one. It doesn't work that way, I found out. But I took that job, and that got me started in my retail career. I worked five years for LaSalle's in Toledo, Ohio, and I decided I needed to make a move. And I moved to Dayton, Ohio, and joined a company by the name of Reich's, and it was with Federated Department Stores. So I went from Macy's to Federated. After 10 years in Ohio, five and five, you know, that was what we called the Rust Belt. And the 70s, it was very, very difficult. Breaking even and meeting last year was considered, you know, a good day, a good week, a good month. And I decided I need to go someplace that was, had less headwind. I took a job with Target in 1980, and that's where I, I met my wife, Kate. It's truly one of the best things that ever happened to me. But I went there, and I was in soft lines, and then I was in hard lines, and I had good bosses, good mentors, and I thought I was going to be a target forever. I got surprised, and I got a call from Toys R Us. Before I go there, though, I want to tell you about my last hire at Target was a gentleman by the name of Ron Johnson. And I bring that up because he's one of my proud hires. Ron is actually the person responsible for Apple's retail stores globally today. Uh, Steve Jobs hired him uh, from Target. You know, Ron tells a wonderful story. He'll tell you I gave him an easy on-ramp. He was a superstar. Uh, I hired him as a senior toy buyer, and then he became a children's merchandise manager, and he was go going places at Target. We, we had a term that we called PIT, and that was acronym for president in training. So I thought I was going to be there forever. I had Ron on my team. I got the call from Toys R Us, and I decided, okay, I'm going to try this. Toys R Us was growing like a weed at that time. It gave me an opportunity to specialize in a business rather than being a large, big-box generalist. So I took the job at Toys. That actually surprised me. I was executive vice president of the corporation and president of the U.S., and I had learned so much at Target. And Toys had a good reputation, but the things that I learned at Target were really applicable to Toys R Us. They needed help in a lot of areas that I thought Target was very, very good at. 
And I applied a lot of those learnings to, to toys, and it worked out. We had stellar years, uh, and it, it, you know, it saddens and shocks me today that Toys R Us is no longer around. But uh, in the 80s, they were a big deal, let me tell you. And we had a lot, a lot of fun there. So once again, I thought, and now I've gone from, you know, department store to discount store, now to specialty store. And I thought I was going to be at Toys R Us forever. And then a very unusual thing happened. Uh, I got a call from a search firm and uh, Herbert Mines in New York. And they said, we have the search. We're doing a search for General Electric for a new chairman and CEO, Montgomery Ward. And I said, I'm not interested. And they said, well, hear us out. We have 46 candidates and your name is not on the list. And I said, I'm not offended. I, I really have no interest. And I, he said, but, but you need to hear us. So I said, okay. And he said, so Jack Welch asked personally to meet with you. And I said, really? Yeah. And I said, I'm not interested. So they said, would you think about it? I said, okay. So they gave me 24 hours. And they called back. And I said, I'll tell you what. I said, you tell Mr. Welch, I'll be happy to meet with him under one condition. And this might be the smartest thing I ever came up with in my life. I said, I'm not the merchant prince that has the answer for Montgomery Ward. And they said, let us get back to you. And they did. And Jack said he'd still like to meet with me. So he sent a helicopter over um, with two 30-year-olds in brown bomber leather jackets. It was a Sikorsky, and they picked me up and in New Jersey, and flew me back over to Connecticut, where Jack's office was. This was really a very interesting time in my life. I was 47 years old. I was at the peak of my career at that point. Felt that way anyhow. When I got to Connecticut, he put me in with Gary Went and Dennis Naden and all these guys at GE Capital, and I didn't know how GE was structured at all. But he had me interview with six guys at one time, six on one. I didn't know that was coming. And that went from 5 o'clock till 6.30. And then Jack comes walking down the hall, and he says, follow me. And I said goodbye to all those guys. And, and we were not really connecting. I'm talking merchandising and operations, and they're talking finance. And we, were, we really weren't you know, that connected. But it went okay. We go down to Jack's office, and it's just he and I, and I'll try to make this short, I'm there for three and a half hours, and I had just gotten done putting together a video for George Lucas where we were pitching him. It was a happy birthday video, and it was for a Star Wars major, major store within a store at Toys R Us, and we were using 3D computer graphics. So we had all this stuff superimposed from the rooftops of our stores, inside the stores, and it was Star Wars, and it looked like Star Wars. And and I just had that. It was a, a little video and everything that I had just used with, with George Lucas. When I interviewed with Jack, I brought that with me because he says, what is it with you guys? You're all weird. You're the least strange one I've ever met in retail, he's talking about. So I wanted to show this video. I said, you got a video player? So he said, yeah. So I popped it in. I showed it to him. And I think it was a big hit because I think it showed you know Jack some interest and excitement and things that I got excited about. Three and a half hours later, he says to me, you have the distinction of being the longest interview in my career. 
And I looked at him. I says, is that good or bad? He says, I don't know. And he says, do you have a lawyer? I said, no. He says, get one. This is going to be good for you. And that was really it. They flew me back to New Jersey. I got home. You know, it was almost midnight. And my wife said to me, how'd it go? And I says, I think they think they hired me. And she said, did you accept? And I said, I don't think so. So it was a really unusual one because Jack never made an offer. He just assumed you're going to come work with me. And he made it right. So he gave me uh, an extremely sizable chunk of Montgomery Ward, which meant something if it made it, but it was, you know, it was hemorrhaging. And I was smart enough to ask for some GE stock. That part worked out and the Montgomery Ward stock didn't. So we went on from there. It was a highlight of my career for sure. And he was a major supporter. He hired me, had me work for the GE Capital guys, which was Gary Went and Dennis Naden. And they knew that they didn't hire me, even though Wards reported to them. And I went into Wards as chairman and CEO. It's the first time I was chairman and CEO anywhere. This is going to sound crass, but there is a saying, you know, it's nice to be king. And I say that with humility, but it really does mean something. It means that you can take the shot. And it was the first time in my life where I felt, okay, I'm, I'm really not, I was working for Jack, but at Wards, I was, you know, it was different. I felt like we were in control here. I also went with a point of view that there really wasn't a lot of downside. This was a deeply, deeply troubled company. It had a lot of rich history, 125 years old, but it was on the bottom of the retail world. And everybody in, in the industry knew that. So it was a long shot. You know, I called it a Hail Mary. We almost pulled it off. Uh, we had, you know, good company, bad company, and we, we had a prototype that we came up with that really did work. We had the industry's attention because they knew that comp store sales were growing dramatically. GE got excited. But then as I got deeper into the portfolio of stores, and there was, we had many divisions, and I got rid of everything but the core business, which was the Montgomery Ward uh, stores themselves. And the problem is they had deeply flawed real estate. You know, over half the chain were in locations where it never made sense to put money in those stores to rehab them. So we were, in that sense, kind of crippled. And Jack said, what do we have here? And I said, well, we've got too much geography and not enough density. And, you know, we need, we need to shrink the geography and, and build some fillbacks. And he says, what's a fillback? And I explained, it's more stores in an existing market, so customers know where you are. And I said, and as we shrink our geography, our expenses can come down because, you know, marketing's less expensive, distribution, logistics are less expensive. How much is that going to cost? We had a number. I said, it's going to cost $1.8 billion. And he said, if you were me, I haven't shared this a whole lot in life, but since Jack's gone, I probably can now. <laughs> He said, if you were me and you had $1.8 billion of capital to invest in something, you had your choice between GE Aircraft, GE Power Systems, or GE Medical, or Montgomery Ward, what would you do? And I told Jack, and I knew when he asked the question, that when I gave him the right answer, it was going to be the end of Montgomery Ward. I said, I would not put it in Montgomery Ward. And that was game, set, match for Wards right there. What I left out... One of the accomplishments, I had a key finance hire that I made, uh, and he's still with me today in my present work, uh, Randy Brown. Randy and I like to tell the story. When we got to Wards, uh, they were losing $700 million uh, of EBITDA a year. So it was obviously hemorrhaging. 
And we like to tell a story that we improved their EBITDA 600 million. The problem is we're still short 100. But uh, we did move the ball down the field. Uh, we were not able to sa save the company. And I uh, shepherded, I, I was there almost at the very end when we turned the lights out in the spring of 2001. So at that point, I was 50 years old. I had a really illustrious retail career with solid retailers. And then I had wards at the end. But I went into it with my eyes open, and I have no regrets. It was absolutely an exhilarating experience, and I learned as much at Montgomery Ward as I learned anywhere. So I'm on the beach, so to speak, and I get a call, and it's from a private equity firm in California, uh, Brentwood Associates. And Brentwood, they're the oldest uh, West Coast-based private equity firm. Uh, they started in 1972, and they didn't even call it private equity it was called Special Situations, and the, the private equity portion of Brentwood formalized in 1984. So I started with them as an outside independent director, and then an advisor, then an operating partner, and I became a general partner in 2005, almost 2006. I didn't even know what private equity was, to be honest. It was a buzzword, though, at 2000. All of a sudden, everybody's hearing about private equity, private equity, and you know, what is it? And, you know, obviously, I, you, you can pick up on it after a while and you figure out what it's all about. What I learned at Brentwood is their business and my business were actually very, very similar. I was coming at it from a, a merchant slash retail perspective, and they were all about the consumer. And they had a lot of consumer businesses at the time, mostly geared and aimed at mass. So customers like Walmart and Target, Kmart, and, but they were finance guys. So we realized that we had a lot in common and we decided, okay, I can make a contribution. And I watched them under uh, stress and how they behaved and they were exemplary. Um, there was never any shouting, never, I mean, these, these, they were gentlemen, a lot of West Coast uh, Stanford guys. And I just had a great admiration for the way they conducted themselves in a professional manner. And they saw something in me, and it was obviously retail experience. And then we made a pivot. When I got there, I said, you're going to get crushed if you stay where you are catering to retailers like you know Walmart and Target. I said, because they're going to have all the leverage. And they listened, and collectively we made a decision, let's pivot away from that. And we literally got away from the big boxes, and we went to specialty retail, more upscale demographics, better income customers, far less competition, if you will. And it really, really worked well. That pivot started in 2006. Fast forward, we've made another pivot recently uh, as a firm. Today, we've decided that we got to go away from selling products more to retail services. So we have 19 companies today, and the last couple of weeks have been Pretty difficult, as you might imagine, under this coronavirus situation. Uh, so this is real time right now. We've laid off over 10,000 people across these 19 companies in the last two weeks. And it's breathtaking when you see how fast this is occurring. And it's, you know, there's some consolation that, you know, you know you're not in this alone. It's not just us. It's everybody. And it's global. Um, so we all are getting inundated with all kinds of information. You know, my own view, and I think it's starting to, um, I think what we're seeing da daily right now, I, I think 
I'm not taking a political side here at all, but I think the idea of pushing out the self-quarantine or quarantine and uh, stay at home through April 30th makes a lot of sense. We're kind of looking at our businesses thinking that June 1 is a time when we have to be, we're, we're, we're going to assume that we're back closer to something normal. And it's our view that we start to come out of this May 1 and that May is an improving type of month and we get back to something. I'm not saying we're going to be back where we were, but we'll get back to something that we think will feel more like normal June 1. My retail career, that's really, I've had two. I had a wonderful retail run for 30 years plus, and I've been in the private equity business for almost 20. And now I've got this coronavirus <laughs> situation. So it's, uh, we've got everybody working at home. And we found out that one of our associates, just yesterday we found out one of our young associates who hasn't been in the office, and our office has been closed for a couple of weeks, but he's got the coronavirus. So our days are long. We're trying to shepherd our CEOs through this. And I got to tell you, I think what we're dealing with at Brentwood is a microcosm of what's going on throughout the country. I'm amazed at how well everybody has responded, how much cooperation we're seeing. There's something really good in this. And I know it sounds crazy, but there is a silver lining. It reminds me somewhat of how people behaved, particularly in New York City after 9-11. Everybody was friendly. Horns weren't honking. You know, it didn't last. But it, it was a good while, and I think people were more respectful, and, and you felt like you were together. And I think that's what's happening right here. You know, it's unprecedented. That word has probably gone up in usage exponentially in the last couple of weeks, but it's, it's unprecedented in everyone's lifetime that's on this planet. We've never seen anything like this. That in itself is noteworthy. While we're on the situation right now, as you mentioned, none of us have seen anything like this before. Are you now doing some planning about possible acquisitions when this is over, about how you're going to handle your present businesses and how that's going to manifest itself? Are those, I would imagine those meetings are taking place as we speak. They are. It's a good question. So as far as acquisitions, we're trying to act as much as we can or as good as we can in terms of business as normal. So there are things that are still coming our way. You know, the, bank, the investment banking community surfaces most of the opportunities that we see today. We try to source things as much as we can on our own. But as we got larger in size, the size of the businesses that we acquire, you know, they got larger and they tend to be represented by investment bankers. So we just had one come into the shop yesterday. We spent an hour and a half talking about it early this morning, and we're going to pursue it. Basically, everybody's in a pause mode right now. The number one priority in all of our companies is liquidity. And out of 19 businesses, we have 16 that are going to hit a, hit a wall somewhere anywhere between late April and early June. And again, that's representative of most all companies out there. So your restaurants get hit hardest the quickest. The cash needs show up in weeks. If you got a month or two, it's considered a long time. But you know, we have businesses that they're closed. If you're doing a little bit of takeout in restaurants, great. But you know, apparel businesses, they're, they're running down uh, 60 to 90%. The liquidity needs are absolutely the number one priority. We have investors, and we spent all of last week preparing to recap where we sit in our funds, and we're appealing to them for some additional monies 
we call it a recycling provision, but all that does is add a little bit more money to a fund so that we can feed some cash into some of these companies to bridge the gap. It's interesting. Uh, you know, these are highly sophisticated investors. So we deal with you know large pension funds and large insurance companies and state pension plans and uh, universities. And they're very, very sophisticated. And they're getting hit by all of the people that they invest in. So we can see a difference this week from what we saw last week. Again, the magnitude of this, I'll give you an example. Our direction to all of our CEOs is do whatever it takes to fight another day. And what that means, that's code for we can't pay rent. And it sounds terrible, but if we'd pay rent, we'd be out of business even faster. So we know all of those things are real. Our landlords do need to get paid. We recognize that. We can only go so far, but you know we're, they're not going to get paid rent in, in March from 90-plus percent of the people that are tenants. And the same thing is going to happen in April. What we got to do is figure out how do we bridge this gap from March and April, and hopefully you know, we do get back to some kind of normalcy by June 1. And the negotiations, will, they'll probably be full steam in May. You know, how are we going to make up for this, this difference? And, you know, what we'd like to do is say, we'll just add it on to the end of the lease. But for a landlord, that doesn't really work. They never get caught whole. So some landlords that we're talking to, and we're just beginning these conversations now, they'll give you some grace for March and April. They want to take the rest of the year and raise your rent so that it makes up for the two months that you didn't pay. This is real-time stuff I'm talking about right now. So paying rent is a big, big deal. But ahead of that, the employees... Uh, the amount of furloughs and the amount of layoffs, and again, I say, you know, in our 19 companies, they're a microcosm of what's going on out there, and it's, it's massive. It's absolutely massive, and I think our country is going to be figuring out just how big this really is, and uh, we got a long way to go before we get out of this economically, and I, I know, you know, the, the $2.2, $2.3 trillion package did some good for the markets, but, you know, it's my view we'll probably see another valley here coming shortly uh, when reality fully sets in. And do I think we'll get by this? Absolutely, we'll get by it. But nobody really knows how long it's going to take. Uh, you know, I don't, I mean, if we got back by the end of the year, I think it'd be fantastic. I wouldn't count on it. Well, and again, I think this isn't a news flash that we're going to talk about now, but the unknown, the fact that we don't know when it's going to start up again. June 1st would be great. But if it doesn't start June 1st, then, again, there has to be another stimulus package or whatever Correct. it might be. But the fact is, if we at least had a date, there'd be definitive plans that could be made for that date. The lack of that is what's really the scariest part of it all. I, I agree. And I personally think when, uh, when our president first came out and you know, put Easter out there, he, he wasn't trying to say, Everything's going to be great come Easter. I think that was his, that was trying to put a marker on the table that we're going to start to come out of this at Easter. It was too aggressive. Uh, to his credit, he's pushed that off to April 30th. You know, that's the way I think of it. And I think, you know, hopefully we get to the other side of this and we see the peak o over the next couple of weeks. And that seems to be building some steam right now. It's different by area. Yes, it's in 50 states, but, you know, New York is an epicenter. And I, I personally don't think we need the one-size-fits-all. And I know that's not what this is all about. But I think you got to, you know, give it everything you have in the areas that really need the help. 
uh, like the hospital ship that showed up in New York yesterday, it just did wonders for the people in New York in terms of the, the medical staffs, the teams. What, I mean, you could see the, how much hope that gave them. They feel like they're not in this alone. They know we're throwing everything at it. And, you know, it's, we're going to get past it. It's just a matter of how much damage is going to be done. You know, there's a medical crisis and there's an economic crisis. And the economic crisis is going to be massive. It's going to be huge. There's no doubt about it. And again, I, this is real. There's no doubt about that. This isn't something that we can just be cavalier about. But I've always been a proponent that it's as much about attitude as it is about earnings. And attitude really has, when, once that comes around, not that the other factors, the financial factors aren't real, but people can adapt to it once they feel that the, the worst is behind them. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I do think um, from this that there's going to be more civility, um, and we need that. Uh, I don't know how long it'll last, but I think, you know, y you feel the seeds of that right now, and, and it's going to happen. I think people are going to have a different perspective on the backside of this. I think we're going to breathe differently. I think we're going to... So take it all in and appreciate more what we have. That said, it, whether we come out of this in June or we come out of it by the end of the year, unfortunately, you know, that civility that I'm talking about, it too will slip away over time and we will really get back to normal. But it, I think it's going to make a, a long lasting impact on the people that are going through this. And that's everybody. Well said. Well said. I have a, a bunch of, not a bunch, but a couple of questions from just what you've talked about up to this point. Your first jobs, you continued to be asked about college. You then were able to be given the chance to show what you can do. And by doing that, you became an invaluable part of whichever company you were with. I understand college is still important. But it seems to me, too, that especially with the cost of education, work experience has a whole lot to do with the sort of success that one can have. First of all, I told you, I, for a long time, I had trouble admitting that I was not a college graduate. And then somewhere along the line, I learned there's some pretty smart people out there that didn't graduate. And success helps that. It does. Yeah. So... I wasn't wired right, I don't think, for college. I never loved school. I really loved working. I mean, I really loved working. I, I'm, I'm not exaggerating. I love to work. I love to make a buck. Today, and I think I, think I was lucky in my timing. Um, I got in the job market, you know, in 1970, and probably, I don't think you could do what I did in 1990. I, I think it's a little more bifurcated today. I appealed to people, I was passionate, and they could see that, and I think that got me over the hump. I don't think today on my best day, of no matter how passionate I would be, I don't think I could get over the hump. I think the rules are tighter and tougher, and now it's, it's a requirement. You simply have to be a college graduate, or they're not even going to consider you. So I could always get the interviews, but I pushed it all the way through to get that consideration and get hired, and I did it more than once. And in my career, I've interviewed, you know, thousands of people, and it's amazing how many people take interviews without really thinking through why they're going to an interview. Usually, and I ask them, why are you here? Well, you called. 
I said, yeah, I know that, but why did you come? And I've done this for years. And they, they just stop and they just look at you. And I said, well, have you ever assessed, you know, your needs in your career? Maybe they're being met where you are. And if they are, why don't you stay there? You know, why would you change? Because, and my point is, so many people change jobs for the wrong reasons. And I really do look at it, if you're, you know, if you're, you have to have goals, I believe in setting short-term goals that are attainable. I've never been big on the long-term goals because I think you need to have some gratification along the way. That long-term thing is fine, but you're better off with little baby steps and little goals, achieve them, set another one, set another one. But so many times people would come in and they didn't really even know why they were there. They were there because the phone rang. And so we'd sit and we'd talk about it. But every now and then I'd find somebody like Ron Johnson, you know, and he literally is the guy who's responsible for the Apple retail stores that we all know. He did it with Mickey Drexler, um, who was on the board and another merchant. And they did, they just did wonderful things. So anyhow, Marty, I, I just think, I think it'd be harder to do today. I think that college degree, you know, there's a different debate now. It's like, do you need it? Maybe not, but you're not going to get to the C-suite without it. So, you know, there's skills and other jobs, but you're probably going to be a little bit more limited. And that's, I think that's accurate. Again, the work experience, but you have to have the right credentials to get through the whole thing. But also, we're all in the business. I've talked to other people in these podcasts about sales. Everybody's a salesperson. Yeah. Learning how to sell is probably the best skill you can learn because you can use it in every place that you go. But selling yourself is part of that skill of selling. There's no question. Um, and I don't really know where it came from. I didn't have a very close relationship with either of my parents. Again, not a hard luck story. My dad was a salesman. My mother was a receptionist. And just four in our family, very independent. No cousins. I had uncles and that, but they were in another state, and they all died early. So really just a tiny, tiny family. It was innate. I don't know where that comes from, but you, know, you feel passionate, and I've said passion a couple of times. I look for people that, that want to make a difference, that are driven, and I have nothing but positive things to say about my upbringing. It was, I think it was different, but at the time, I didn't know it was different. And again, I was never deprived of anything. And it just, life just happened. So what's that saying? Life's happening while you're too busy working to think about it? Something like that. Yeah. So. Also, you talked about Target being an important step. And I've had it again from some other people that have been here saying that working for a larger company teach you basics that you can take along the way anyplace else that you work. At Target was probably like that. Jack Welsh and working for GE was probably like that. There's something about a larger company that can give you a business education, if you will. I agree. And I had, so in my career, I actually started with a very small division of a large company. And the, the neat thing about that is you're exposed to a lot more. So you're a generalist. And as I went to larger companies, it's kind of the reverse. Then you start to say, well, wait a minute, you know, now i got to specialize more in a segment of the business, unless you start to run the whole thing. Uh, by the way, the, the, the one thing I want to say about Jack, because uh, there's all kinds of things written about him, I, you know, we could go on to, for days, but uh, everybody said, what's it like working for him? And I'd like to share that. 
Um, Jack's, Jack had an uncanny ability to get to the heart of an issue in warp speed. And, you know, he's actually the father of the takeaway. When you look at a deck, you know, I'm talking about a, you know, like a board, any kind of deck. At the very bottom, there's that little box. And it's what that, what's in that box is what you're supposed to take away from that page. So there's all that data on that page and all those bullet points. But what do you really want me to take away from this page? And that was Jack. Um, the other thing is he, and it's, you know, he's written, people have written about it. Jack always wanted to be number one or two in everything. And that had an effect on me. And my view on that is, and it's part from him and part from what I've developed in my own, my, in my own beliefs, I think that whatever you're doing in business, you better do it better than your competition. And you better have a real, you know, edge that the customer can see. So I've always been more of a value merchant and I'm talking about obvious value. So I always like to, my two of my examples are Costco. You know, Costco does what they do better than anybody. They offer extraordinary value. And they're not trying to be everything to everybody. The other one is in the in the food business. Look at In-N-Out Burger. And they've got the smallest, simplest menu. And what they do, they do better than anybody. So just two examples of extraordinary value. Well, the paradigm uh, idea is that years ago, Levi's, uh, got into making suits, and it didn't. <laughs> Panatella. Who needed, who needed a suit yeah. <laughs> from Levi? They make great jeans. That's what they do. I I know it well. That was their Panatella division, I think. And uh, I knew Bob Haas. I did a lot of business with with Levi. When I got to Target, Target didn't have Levi, and I spent years trying to convince them this is your customer. You should sell Target. And eventually they came up with another label and they actually did sell, sell us jeans, but it took years. Their excuse was, well, we don't sell anybody that has shopping carts. And I said, you got to come up with another one. <laughs> so, <laughs> the Jack Welch thing, not uh, spend too much time on it, because as you said, we could go on to be a separate podcast of its own. But Jack believed in you. And through our careers, we, if we get a Jack Welch to believe in us, that's a big. That's a big leg up. Yeah. Well, we had. I think it was all. It all stemmed from an interview and a wonderful night. And he did. Uh, I, I believe he believed in me. I, I will. I know for a fact he was a strong supporter through thick and thin. He uh, he had my back. And you know, I think he 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 did some other things. He says when you go when you get to Chicago, do some things that make those people feel good. So you know, we got into the stores and they. I remember I told everybody, turn the lights on. They look like we're going out of business. And my predecessor turned every other row of the lights off. So I got done with all my meetings. I told the people to turn the lights on. And the next thing I know, I've got some operations guy at my office. He says, Mr. Gadu. I said, Roger. He says, Mr. Gadu. He says, I know you want the lights on. I know you're serious, but it's not that easy. And I says, why is that? And well, you know, Bernie, that was my predecessor, he had us cut out all of the, uh, it's not just the bulb, there's something else that's in all those lights, and they were all cut out, so we had to re refit the entire chain, and it was a $10 million bill to get that done for 406 stores, and that's when we didn't have any money, and we spent it. The other thing we did is we 
we gave those stores paint jobs. The other thing we did is we pulled weeds in the parking lot. I went out to these stores. They, they just looked awful. And I said, paint the curbs fresh, pull the weeds out, make the stores look good. And by the way, the people felt it. And the people thought we were going to make it. And they really did feel good. So usually, you know, there's a saying in, in my lifetime, a fish usually stinks from the head. So it's not the people down chain. It's the people up there. And when I go out and see stores that look like crap, I would rarely take apart anybody at that store. I'd go back to the office, and that's where the problem is. It's always in the national office. Well, and it's a creating a culture because you, your job, I believe, as a leader is to create an environment where people can do things they never thought they could accomplish before. I agree. Who had the greatest influence or what people have had the great, greatest influence on your life, Roger? When I was young, it's my parents, but for what they didn't do more than what they did do. They, they left me alone. They gave me responsibility, a lot of freedom, probably more than I should have had. But I didn't abuse it. I have to say my parents, by what they allowed me to do, later on in life, I'd say my wife, Kate, she's truly one of the most extraordinary people I've ever come across. She's kind. There isn't anybody that doesn't like my wife. And if, they, if, there, if I find somebody, there's usually something wrong with that person. <laughs> but she just has a, a wonderful outlook on life, and she's spiritual, and far more spiritual than I am. So I've learned that from her. And then career-wise, it was singular. It was Jack. There's just no question about it. I didn't meet him until I was 46. There was somebody prior to Jack. There was a gentleman by the name of O.C. Adams. He was the executive vice president of Target. He came from Kroger. And we had a mentor relationship, and O.C. was my mentor. And I remember going to lunch one, one day, and, you know, he was there to listen. And I'm going through, we should be doing this, and we should be doing that. And O.C. said, you know, if you're smart enough to identify all those issues and problems, you, you should be smart enough to come up with some solutions. That stuck. And that stuck, and one thing that I've, adopted along the way, and I don't know who I got it from, but I use extensively today. I tell all of our CEOs, and I ask them to do the same with their people, take a partner. Uh, I'm very, very big on taking a partner. Don't be a cowboy. Don't try to make decisions all on your own. Take a partner. And usually, you know, the old saying, two heads are better than one, uh, it's working. And it, it has served me well. It, it has served our people well. I've had people talk to me about it. It's one of the best learnings that they've ever had is the whole concept of take a partner. So those are the people, my parents, by what they didn't do, my wife, Kate, uh, we've been together now uh, 40 years this year, and, and Jack in my career. i got to break it up that way. What qualities do you look for in people that work with you? Um, I look for passion. I look for self-starters. I look for people with imagination uh, creativity, that's what Ron Johnson had. There was no question about it. He was, by the way, he was in Mervyn's, which was a sister division of Dayton Hudson Corporation uh, that was the parent of Target. And we never did any cross-hiring. But I got a call one day from HR in Dayton Hudson. They said, would you be willing to interview somebody from Mervyn's? And I said, sure, send them over. So they sent them over, and we had an opening in our toy division. We had a GM down there, Paul Salzer, and I called Paul, and I said, I got somebody I want you to talk to after I got done with him. And Paul picks up the phone. Paul was quick. Calls me back 20 minutes later. He says, I got one question. And I said, what's that? He says, why wouldn't we hire him? So we did. 
I mean, when I tell you a superstar, Ron was a superstar. Made a big mistake with JCPenney. We won't get into that, but he was a superstar. He's a talented, talented merchant. What is your management philosophy? Keep it simple. That's what's worked for me. I think, to, I think that's an easy thing to say, by the way. I think business is so much more complex today than it ever was 50 years ago, 40 years ago. And, you know, the internet, not to drop a name, but I met Bill Gates when I went to Montgomery Ward uh, at Northwestern's campus. And I was invited over there by the dean, Dean Jacobs. I thought it was going to be a big, you know, 100 people. It was five of us at a table having lunch. I said, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in over my head here or over my skis. And Bill was to my left. And I figured out in five minutes that I was in the presence of a genius. And I remember what he said that day. It's another one of those things that stuck. We were talking about the computer and we were talking about Moore's Law. He said, you know, when we, when we came up with the computer, we never really did it with the intention of making it easier for people. There was a little regret in how he said it. He said, it's really provided people with the opportunity to do more. And if you think about it, you can say, yeah, this is easier to do than that, than it used to be in the old way. But if you look at how much more you're doing, we're all doing what would it take, you know, hundreds of hours a week. We're now doing it in 40, 50, 60, well, it's never been a 40-hour week, but 60, 70, 80 hours a week. And, and that kind of stuck. So, And I think it's true. It's like there was another time I, I was at IBM. This is when I was at Toys R Us. And I remember going up to their think tank and looking at their, their labs and all that and their CEO at the time, he was new to the computer industry, and he said, isn't it kind of interesting there's no on-off? There's no on-off on any of these things, you know? You got to type in the keyboard, and so they didn't make it exactly easy. So for me, it's, it's keep it simple because it's very complex. The retail business is a very easy business. It's a very simple business when you think about it, but it has a lot of touch points. So you got a lot of SKUs. You got a lot of customers. But other than that, it's really pretty basic. We're trying to buy things and sell things. That's all it is. And I remember I once had this guy that said, you know, it's not that tough. You just got to buy more of what sells and less of what doesn't. Sure, it's not that easy either. But it is a relatively simple business. It's complicated because of all the touch points. And today you have the stores and you have catalogs and you have internet and direct. And so you have all these different channels and retailers are still struggling on trying to, how do we best put that all together? And, you know, I've seen it change where we're running four separate businesses and they're all coming back to, we need one inventory. And, and now we're trying to leverage that. We're getting smarter and smarter and every retailer is getting better at it. But I can tell you some of the best in the business are still frustrated. They don't think they, they're where they need to be in terms of serving the customer. The customer wants it now and she wants to be able to buy it any way she can, whether it's on her iPhone, her laptop, her iPad, and she wants to be able to get it to the house, pick it up, getting all that to work is really a challenge and work well. Question about this. With all of those challenges, how has Amazon affected the retail business? Massive. You're talking to somebody who feels like they got a free ride for a very long time. I think the world's a better place because of Amazon. I have said that for years about Walmart. Whether you shop Walmart or not, and I'll come right back to Amazon, Everybody here in this country has benefited from Walmart's existence. And you might say, well, how's that? 
because it's like a pyramid and Walmart's at the base and the next guy up the rung has to stay closer to Walmart and so on and so on and so on. So it really affects the entire spectrum of retail, even if you're not a Walmart shopper. So Amazon, they've given retailers absolute fits, but in the end, they're going to make retailers better. And the ones that the weak will fall away and, you know, the rest will be stronger. And that's what's been going on. All these big box retailers, they didn't have to internet. We didn't have internet at Target when I was there. It came on the scene when I was at Toys R Us. Right when I left Toys R Us, just partnered with Amazon. Then Amazon, they thought they had an exclusive. They sued Amazon. They won the law case. But I like to say, you know, they won the battle but lost the war because they had a great partner. They won a $52 million lawsuit against Amazon, but they'd have been better with Amazon, I think. So when I say Amazon's gotten a free pass, I'm talking about for years they didn't make any money and they had this astronomical multiple. And you know the investors have obviously bet on the growth of the company. They've bet on the future. And it took me a long time to buy Amazon stock, but I did, you know, and should have bought more. It's a wonderful company. There's so many other things there. And he's another visionary, obviously. Bezos is, you know, absolutely a visionary. And I think, you know, in in China, it's Alibaba. That is Amazon over there. So as you bring that up, though, I will tell you, and I say this objectively, uh, don't count Walmart out of this. Walmart is gaining on their internet business big time. And they've got all the stores that they can leverage in all their warehouses those are all things that Amazon's had to build. So I, I think it's going to be, you know, largely a two-horse race. But other people, you know, there's, they're thriving in the Internet. Target's thriving in, inter, in, in the Internet business. It's still a relatively small part of their business. I think they do about $85 billion in total. And their direct business is probably $8 billion, you know, right around. They're moving from 7 8 9 to 10%. Uh, so it's, but it's growing, and it's growing faster than anything else. Everybody wants convenience. We looked at a company once called Diapers.com. It, it eventually got bought by Walmart, and it was Jet.com. And that is, that's who has really fired up Walmart's business today. I went there, and I was amazed. Like Initially, like, why would anybody want to buy diapers over the Internet? We used to go to Target for those. We used to go to Toys R Us for those. Think about it. You're a new mom. You got a baby. Why do you want to go to the store and buy diapers in bulk when you can get it delivered to your home? So like the light bulb went off, I said, this makes a lot of sense. So a lot of learnings along the way here. And I look at my kids, uh, our kids, and, and they're growing up with this. I mean, I see the boxes coming in every single day. And, you know, they're almost as many are going out as coming in. That's another issue, by the way. It's hard. You know, anybody that offers free returns, it, it's hard to keep up with that. But that's the way they shop. That's the way they live. And it, it's you have a change going on. Are the retail stores going to go dead? Absolutely not. I think um, in certain categories, you know, there's more pressure than others. But overall, it looks like the Internet's going to kind of settle in at about 30%, maybe 35%. And retail, your brick and mortar will be 65 70%. And I think that's a long-term viable forecast. With this virus and the behavioral changes that are taking place, does that even give the Amazons and the Walmarts and stuff even a bigger leg up? No question. I mean, that it, it, we're fortunate that we have that right now. If, if this virus would have hit 20 years ago, you know, we would be doing half the commerce that, that we are doing today. So 
that is a way for people to behave and be, you know, and react to this that they didn't have 20 years ago. So it's there's no question about that. And and it's people that don't have a a, a robust site, they're gonna they're gonna feel more pain right now. But there's a lot of progress being made on the internet right now in, in terms of commerce, an awful lot. I mean, we all use it, you know, and, and it's moving rapidly to mobile. You know, mobile's, mobile's ahead of everything. And I think we're right at the point where mobile's about to become the largest um, uh, access point. You know, it was 40% of all internet sales, I think, last year. And it, it's going to surpass 50 because that mobile device, it's a computer, you know, and it's convenient. Convenience, convenience is a big deal. Okay, with all you've accomplished, and we haven't even touched on all of it, but a lot of it, what drives you today? Well, that's a good question. I've been guilty of my career probably dominating too much of my life. You know, I, my wife's been a saint in that regard, and you know, I think she's allowed me to spend my time where I want to spend my time. I probably have not done as good a job on the family side of things as I should have. So, you know, I'm, I'm a believer it's never too late. I'm enjoying grandkids, you know, for the first time, and they're a lot of fun. I'm not totally done with work. I think the time is coming, you know, for balance in that. And to answer you head on, one thing I do like I had a, a, a director once, a sage, wise lawyer, who said, besides surrounding yourself with people who are smarter than you, make sure you, you find younger friends. So that younger friends line has stuck with me. I enjoy, in our firm, there's two gray hairs, and then after myself and Bill, it drops from us to 44. And the whole rest of the firm is, you know, literally 44 to 26. And... I have really enjoyed hanging around with the younger people. I, I typically stay in the office at night, have dinner with them every night. You just learn an awful lot just hanging around with younger people. So that's a driver for me. And then I enjoy coming out to Bighorn and relaxing. And, you know, I'm one of these guys that I'm a frustrated golfer. I don't play as much as I'd like to. But when I have the opportunity to play a little more, I, I know I play better. And I get excited about it. So I don't think I'm going to be one of these guys that would be happy playing golf every single day. But I might try it. <laughs> so. And what advice would you give the 20-year-old Roger Cadu? Um, if you're lucky, and I, I tell this to my kids, I think it's critical that you find something that you really enjoy. It, it, and I'm not the first to say that. But if you find something that you really like, it's not work. It's fun. And, and I can't say it any better than that. Roger, I want to thank you very, very much for doing this. And in many of our podcasts, and this really epitomizes this, it's not just your life story, but it's also life lessons to be shared with other people, business examples that you've given. And I know in a lot of our podcasts, I've had people say, well, I sent this to my two boys that are going into college. They're going into the workforce and they're looking for something. This is the type of interview. This is the type of interaction that we've had that has those kinds of lessons for the young people you're talking about. And again, I thank you for sharing. That. Good. My pleasure. And I really appreciate the opportunity to share my story. Thank you very much. All right, Roger. Thanks. Thank you again for listening. 
We appreciate all of your supportive comments about these episodes that have given you a stronger connection to the people in our community. They have been the stars of our broadcasts, and we look forward to bringing you more of these fascinating stories. And thanks again to Leeds and Son Fine Jewelers and AT&T for their continued support of these podcasts and our community. Join us next time for the Bighorn Podcast with amazing people and their fascinating stories.